Good morning. Now let's open with a word of prayer. Once more, Father God, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come before you and to hear your word expounded to us. We ask that you would fill us each with the Holy Spirit, both the speaker and the listener. God, we ask that you would please feed your church, that we would be nourished and encouraged, that your church is edified and strengthened, and we grow in our knowledge, and most importantly, our love of you and our love for each other. Father, challenge us. Help us to think bigger thoughts of you and desire to live lives more fitting of the calling that we have received. And now speak to us. We, your servants, will listen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. John was born in London in 1725. His dad was a shipmaster serving in the Mediterranean fleet. At the age of 11, John decided he wanted to join his dad on one of these voyages. And beginning at that time, he made six voyages to the Mediterranean with his dad before his dad retired in 1742. At that time, John's dad decided that he'd set him up in business in Jamaica, running a sugar plantation, but John did not want to go to Jamaica. He rather decided he was going to uh, join the merchant marines, and so he signed on on a merchant ship sailing to the Mediterranean. Shortly after he signed up in 1743, he was on his way to visit some friends of his, and he got uh, shanghaied, literally shanghaied, by the British Royal Navy and pressed into serving in the, in the Navy. And because he'd had um, sailing experience, he was made a midshipman on the HMS Harwick. He did not like being in the Royal Navy, and he decided to try to desert. And he was caught and punished in front of the crew of 350. They stripped him to his waist, tied him to the grating, and then gave him eight dozen lashes. He was not only terribly injured, but terribly humiliated. He decided he was going to murder the captain and then kill himself by jumping overboard. But he got over it. He healed physically, he healed spiritually, but um, he um, decided later that he would transfer from the HMS, HMS Harwick to the, uh, uh, the Pegasus, which was on its way to uh, India. Pegasus was a slave ship, and they did not like John. And so this slave ship was to pick up slaves in Africa, take them to the Americas, to Jamaica and that area, to trade the slaves for sugar, take the sugar and stuff to England, and take the goods. It was called the Slave Triangle um, from the colonies back to England. He didn't get along with the, the ship's crew of the Pegasus, and they abandoned him in West Africa. They traded him to this guy by the name of Amos Clough, who was a, a slave trader. Amos Clough didn't like him either, and so Amos Clough gave John to his wife, who was a, a, the princess paye of the, the local people there, as her slave. And so he ended up being a slave to the slaves in West Africa. He later wrote about this time in his life where he said he was once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in West Africa. In 1748, John's father hired a captain to go to West Africa to look for him and to, um, to save him if he could, which he did. John later then returned to Liverpool, re-entered into the slave trade once again, uh, partly because of his father's influence and because of his father's friend's influence, he became first mate on a slave ship, the Barlow, 
uh, which was again bound for West Indies and then to the coast of, of Guinea. Uh, John continued on with his slave trade and then later became the captain of a slave ship, the Duke of Argyle, and then later the African. When he retired from his seafaring responsibilities, he uh, still invested in slavery, but at that time he converted to Christianity. And then um, he felt convicted of the slave trade and he renounced the slave trade, became a uh, supporter of abolitionism. That's the activity against slavery. Now that he was an evangelical Christian, he was ordained in the Church of England and he served for as a cleric, uh, a parish priest at only in Buckinghamshire for two decades after this time. John Newton, uh, the John that we were talking about, the very famous hymn writer, uh, became one of the most outspoken uh, critics against slavery, one of the strongest for abolition, and he lived to see abolition uh, in, of, the, of the England's, of England's slave trade in 1807, just a few months before he died. Would it surprise you to know that there are more slaves in the world today than at any other time in history? And not only did they do away with the slave trade in England and the slave trade in America, but it didn't, it didn't even slow down the slave trade. There are more slaves right now than any other time. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verse 15, where we left off last week. <clears throat> Remember, each one of these messages builds on the other. So you need to know where we have been to know where we are. You need to know where we are to know where we're going. So Romans chapter 6, 15, if you, if you glance at this um, just as, as a cursory overview, you'll see that it very closely parallels where we were last week. So you have two parallel passages, verses 1 to 14, and then the verses we're looking at today, 15 through 23, which pretty much say the same thing. There's, they're, they're answering nearly identical questions. If you look at section one, one, which begins in Romans 6, 1, Romans 6, 1 begins by saying, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then you jump to the section that we're looking at today, which is paralleling where we were before, and he raises the same question. What shall we say? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And in both cases, it's followed by two identical responses where he says, in verse 2 and then in verse 15, he says, no way, absolutely not, God forbid, may it not be so, um, by no means. And then Paul goes on to explain why it is impossible for a person who has come to Christ, why a believer who uh, expresses his faith in Christ, why it's impossible for that believer to continue on in his sinful life. A, a, a contrast is, is exposed here. Christians those who have given themselves to Christ Jesus, are instruments of righteousness. And so we have these complementary sections. In fact, they're, they're so complementary, you can almost lift the phrases out of one and transpose them on the other, and you'd still end up with the same conclusion here. But while they're very similar, strikingly similar, they're not identical, because they, while they have the same objective, and that is to show that the believer can't go on sinning once he's come to Christ, they do make an important distinction, a different point, the complementary but distinctly different. So the first section really is answering a question that brought up in chapter 5, and that is that the Christian's not under law but under grace, and because he's under grace, 
He won't continue on in sin because he's going to continue on in righteousness. But now in this second section, again, he's, he's talking about how freedom does not come from obeying the law. But his point is that you are different than you used to be. You are no longer subject to your slavery to sin because you are now a slave of somebody else. You have become a slave of righteousness. Hence the name of your chapter heading there, Slave of Righteousness. And hence the name of today's sermon, Slave of Righteousness. So Romans chapter 6, verse 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we're given this um, presentation. This is what it looks like when someone presents himself to someone else to be a slave. Now, we need to back up and get a little bit of storyline here because slavery in the Roman Empire in no way looks like the slavery that we know of in our American history. So we have to discard this American concept of slavery. Slavery has been widespread throughout history and is still widespread today. But the forms of slavery differ greatly, and so you'll see that the form of slavery in Rome or the Roman Empire is quite different from the form of slavery that we had in the United States. Um, the Roman Empire literally had millions of slaves, wait, millions of slaves. At any given time, maybe 10 million slaves were in the Roman Empire. They, they, at one time they thought, well, we should make slaves all dress alike so that we can identify who's a slave. And then they realized, what if they realized each other how many there were? You know, and so they decided not to do that because they didn't want the slaves to realize that almost a third of the population were at that time slaves. But there are some differences. Well, let's start with the similarities. If you were a slave, you were the property of somebody else. You were not free to do as you wanted to. You are essentially under obligation to do whatever your master tells you to do. So that's common in any form of slavery. But slavery in Rome was different in, in several ways. First of all, Slavery in Rome was, was not ethnic or racial. It didn't, it didn't depend on your, on your skin color or, or where you came from um, that, that, it, that determined whether you were a slave. Second, enslaved people in Rome were usually paid for their services, not at the same rate, but at a complementary rate, so that eventually you could purchase your own freedom. Um, to that end, most slaves um, by the time they got old, had earned their freedom. So there weren't very many old slaves because most of them had purchased their freedom by that time. So it's not necessarily a permanent condition. Um, fourth, the slaves didn't just labor in fields and in homes. Many of the slaves in the Roman Empire were professional people. It was not uncommon for you to be a teacher, a doctor, a lawyer, anything else, um, because being a slave didn't keep you out of those professional fields. Fifth, most people became slaves um, because of, well, some of them became slaves because they got kidnapped or they were born into slaves. But by and large, the Roman slaves were acquired during their military conquest, which is why they had to keep adding more areas so that they could enslave more people. In uh, uh, 57 BC, during the Punic Wars, this Caesar, Tiberius, no, no, no. Julius Caesar at that time, 57. 
Julius Caesar was so torqued off at these Frenchmen, like well, everybody's torqued off with a Frenchman, but even then, they were torqued off with a Frenchman. And he had 53,000 people enslaved in one day. He had the slave traders show up, and he had the entire population of this tribe, this Gallic tribe, enslaved. When the Jews revolted against Rome in the first Jewish revolt in um, 66 or, yeah, between 66 and 70 AD, so when the Jews revolted, 97,000 Jews were enslaved by um, the uh, Roman Emperor Vespasian, and they were all, they were not sold into slavery, they were carted to Rome where they were going to work on the Flavian Amphitheater, better known as the Roman Colosseum. So these 97,000 Jews were enslaved in that, in that, at that one time. But while most of the slaves were, were, were gathered from conquering other countries, almost all of the soldiers that were defeated became slaves, you could also sell yourself into slavery. And you say, well, why on earth would you choose to sell yourself into slavery? Because if you were poor or disadvantaged, this was a really good way to be taken care of because you could sell yourself to a, a wealthy uh, owner who would provide you with uh, with a home to live in, with with good living conditions, with an education. Um, so a person might choose to sell themselves into slavery to better their lives, or because they they had a debt and they wanted to to uh, pay off their debt through the slavery. So a lot of people voluntarily became slaves in the Roman Empire. So keep that in mind because the next question Paul asks is, don't you realize that whenever you present yourself to someone for obedience, um, you are that person's slave. You are the slave of the one to whom you obey. And he uses the word when you present yourself. Again, here he's talking about willing submission or, or willing obedience or voluntary slavery. That's the kind of slave he's talking about. Don't you realize that when you voluntarily submit yourself, present yourself to someone as its, as its servant, you obey him. That's the job you have to do. You don't have to obey him if you're not his slave. And Paul's making a very simple point here. Either you are being mastered by sin, in which case you were under the lordship of Satan, you were a slave of sin, a slave of Satan's, or you are the slave, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are mastered by righteousness. Matthew Henry observed, if you want to know which of these two families we belong, we must inquire which of these two masters we yield our obedience. In, you know, in our freedom-seeking, rebellious minds, especially as Americans, we, we, you know, we, we get rather huffy about that, and we say, well, no man, no thing, no person, no being is going to tell me what to do. No one is going to be my master. And we have this popular notion that, that uh, we can be the master of our own destiny, that we can choose for ourselves what we want. We can decide for ourselves what's good for us, and we can make that choice. That is a lie that Satan has deceived people with all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That was the, 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 the kernel of the first uh, sin, the first fall. Uh, human beings are not independent creatures. They are not free. They cannot be free in the sense that we define that, the way that since the world defines uh, freedom and values freedom. 
The problem comes up in that many Christians resist submitting fully to Christ. They want to say that they are servants of God. They would never say the slave of Christ, but they say, well, we serve God. But the, the reality is we don't serve him fully. We serve him selectively. Many non-Christians, of course, they totally reject the idea because they already assume they are free and they can do whatever they want to. They're free to choose God if they want to. They're free to choose righteousness if they want to. They're free to not do so. We're totally autonomous. Why would I choose to become the slave, the servant of, of someone else? And so we think we are, we are free to do as we want to. We can do as we please. But that's just a deception. You are not free to do as you want to. And you are not free to make your own choices. Furthermore, it should be self-evident, just in passing, that nobody can be the slave of two masters. Let's see, somebody said something like that. No one can serve two masters, for he either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You know who said that? Jesus. Now again, notice that Paul here is not speaking of a moral or spiritual obligation. He's not saying you really should be the servant of God. You really ought to not be the servant of Satan. He's making a, a statement of reality here. He's saying you either are the servant of evil of sin, or you are the, the, the servant of God, not ought to be. You, you are Christians, you are the slave of righteousness. Well, why? He's, he's talking about that God has made you to be the slave of righteousness. Now, let me ask you a question. If you are a, a Christian, practically speaking, isn't that the experience you had when you first came to Christ? Didn't you say as you came to Christ, Lord, I surrender all. I give up all of who I am. I submit to your lordship. What do you think lordship means? It means you obey him because he's the Lord. If you don't obey him, he's not your Lord. Quit calling yourself a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you know you came to that point where you submitted, you presented yourself, as Paul said, as slaves of righteousness. The reality is that no human being is free to do whatever they want to do. There's only one being in the entire universe who is totally free, able to do whatever he wants. And that, of course, is God, and you are not he. Every other creature is limited, boxed in, controlled. The word he's using here is enslaved. Every other creature is enslaved by someone or something. And, of course, that leads to only one meaningful question, and that is, who? Who are you serving? Whose slave are you? Make no mistake, sin is slavery. And the difficulty here is it's hardly ever seen that way by us. We think we sin because we exercise our freedom. And we usually describe that as, yeah, I sin because I'm, I'm free to do whatever I want to, and I choose to do this. Isn't that quite similar to what Satan asked Eve when he said, you don't, don't, you don't have to be bound by God's word. You can do whatever you want. You can eat of this fruit. You don't have to do what God says. You can be like God. You can be independent. You can be free. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you 
who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. What is the universal hallmark of slavery? It is obedience. You do what the master tells you to do, or if we can borrow the term from lordship. What is the universal hallmark of someone being lord? He tells you what to do and you do it. Our problem is that whole concept of obedience to someone else has become, become something of a cultural obscenity. The idea that we have to obey anyone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he's paralleling two things and he says there's a difference between cheap grace and costly grace. So in comparing them he says, cheap grace, the grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom it departs. Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. And then what does he say about costly grace? Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. So submitting, presenting ourselves as slaves of righteousness calls for us to be profoundly obedient. It's one or the other. Ray Steadman, many years ago, talks about walking through the streets of Los Angeles, and he's, he's walking along, and he sees a guy with one of those sandwich boards, uh, I think that's what they're called, sandwich board. And on the front of this, this guy's uh, sandwich board, it said, Slave of Christ Jesus. And then uh, Stedman looks back at him as he's walking away, and it says, Whose slave are you? See, that's really the, the essence of it, isn't it? You are either the slave of Christ Jesus, or you are the slave of sin. Back in 1979, uh, the apostle Bob Dylan wrote... <laughs> Remember that song, it, it, uh, You Gotta Serve Somebody? So the, the refrain is, you're going to have to serve somebody. Uh, well, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the painful reality. And so Paul concludes here in verse 18. He says, but having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Now, again, we tend to think, we are totally free to make whatever decisions we want. We are free to choose God. We are free to not choose God. Let me ask you, are you? Are you really free to choose God if you're the slave of sin? Here he's saying if you're the slave of sin, you are free from righteousness. Righteousness has no claim to you. Now we, you know, we, we define freedom like... like having the liberty to do whatever we want as long as we don't hurt somebody. That's kind of an oversimplification, but Paul's point here is that uh, you, you really aren't free to do whatever you want. Who's watching this to see when it falls over? <laughs> I'm just going to wait and see. <laughs> 
let's use a contemporary analogy. We're talking about a professional athlete who becomes a free agent. When he becomes a free agent, his goal is not to play for no one. He's free. And so what he wants to do with his freedom is he wants to play for a better team. He wants to get a higher salary. He wants to submit himself. He wants to become the servant of better coaches, better staff, because he wants to improve his lot. Similarly, when the Christian breaks free from the slavery of sin, he doesn't enter the freedom to do nothing. He enters this, this, he becomes enslaved, he becomes the servant of a new coach, in this case, God. And he willingly does whatever the coach decides is best for him. He plays whatever position. You know, he, he tries out something new. He heeds the instruction. He follows a new strategy. He's not free to do nothing. He's free to become the, the servant of, of another coach. Well, anyway, I'll come back to this. Verse 19. Now, now, Paul recognizes here that this is a metaphor, and as in all metaphors, they break down. There's, there's limits to it. And, he, and so he's trying to say, I, you know, I get it. I, this is, I'm trying to put a spiritual concept into terms that you can understand, but I, I realize that there are limits to this. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Again, here's this metaphor of the Lord being the master. And as the master, as the owner, as the rightful possessor, he has the right to expect, to require, to demand complete obedience. He commands our undivided allegiance. Let's take a slave, let's take a, let's take a tour to the Roman slave market. We go to the Roman slave market, there's lots of them. Slaves are pretty cheap. Average cost of a working slave is, is about $2,000, literally about $2,000. And so you go to the slave market, you're looking them over. The slaves that are up for auction are usually put on a turntable butt naked so that you can see what it is you're buying. Because, you know, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. But you go into the slave market and you find some slaves. And your first question is, whose slave is he? Well, suppose you asked him, you know, who's your master? And he lies to you. He says, oh, that guy over there is my master. How do you know that he's lying? How do you know who his, his master is? How do you know to whom he belongs? And the answer is, there's only one person that he has to obey. Everybody else he's free to ignore. He is bound to obey this one person. And so what happens then if that slave gets purchased by somebody else? Does he still have to obey his former master? No. His allegiance is broken with his former master because he is now the possession of someone else. Now his allegiance belongs to someone else. That's what Paul is getting at. You used to be the slave of lawlessness, of sin. But somebody has purchased you, purchased you with his own blood, purchased you at the cross, bought you with a price. And so the Christian has passed from his obligation, his duty, his allegiance, his obedience to sin, and he has passed into the service of God. And now he's obliged to obey 
to, to obey God. It's his, it's his duty now to obey his new master. And like I said, unfortunately, many Christians don't see it that way. We don't submit fully to our owner, our master. We rather, continuing to think that we are the masters of our own fate, able to choose whatever we want to, we can choose right or wrong, we're still persistently thinking we are free of everyone, and so we offer to God a limited obedience. We say, God, I want to follow you. I certainly want the benefits from following you, but I'm going to purposely hold back in certain areas of my life. And you say, well, that would never happen. Happens all the time. You do it too. Now, don't misunderstand me. We all struggle with persistent sin, our signature sins that we continue to go back to. The difference is we are penitent. We are sorrowful. We hate our sin, and God is abundant in his forgiveness. I'm not talking about the fact that we continue to stumble and we keep coming back in sorrowful repentance. What I'm talking about is the Christian who limits how obedient he will be to God. He plans to be selective in his service. For that kind of a person, religion is just a, a supplement that we add to our life. We're going to live our life the way we want to. We're going to serve Jesus because there's some benefit to us. But if Jesus asks us to do something we don't want to do, we aren't going to do it. And if we find in the Scripture, as it's been opened to us, something that, that, is, that contrasts with or defies how we think, the selective servant will just simply say, well, that's, that's just what you think. They won't let the Word of God change them. They don't, it doesn't lead them to repentance, to, to change. And that means that person is not a disciple, certainly, because he's certainly not submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is, at best, a selective servant. Uh, verse 20. <clears throat> For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So righteousness is not your master. You don't have to obey it. You have, it has no authority over your life. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now, now that you have been saved, you're ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end is eternal life. Well, this is not my main point here, but this is a really good time to talk about the whole subject of free will, since it's all about obedience. First of all, let me say free will is not ever mentioned in the Bible. It's true, you have free will, but it is not something that is, that is granted to us from, from Scripture. You are, you are free to exercise your will only within the, the parameters that your master permits. So you are free... To exercise. By the way, free will is basically you deciding what's in your best interest and acting according, accordingly. But before you come to Christ, when you are a slave of sin, you exercise your free will. You decide serving God is not in my best interest. I won't. So you are only ex you are only free to exercise your free will. Within those bonds, you cannot choose God. You don't want to choose God. You are unable to choose God. All the same thing. 
Most people, when they talk about free will, I mean, they're talking about the idea that man is sovereign over everything in his life. We have the power to choose whatever we want to. We have the power to think any way that we want to. We have the, the ability and, the, and the, the power to choose right from wrong, to choose God or, or Satan, to choose whatever we want to. That whatever we desire is that which we can have, that, that we want to. We think that that is the exercise of free will. But here Paul is saying, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the free will that we're discussing here. He says, whatever you obey, whether it's sin or righteousness, that is your master. And you're going to do whatever your master tells you to do. Before you came to God, you are free in the sense of free to righteousness. You are free of any demands that God has on your life, any ability to serve him. Not only free to, but unable to. And instead, you are still the, the slave of sin. Righteousness has no, no claim on you. But can you choose to do righteousness? Can you choose God? In that fallen state, when you are a sinner of, a, a slave of sin, are you free to choose God? Absolutely not. Look here how he, he puts it. He says, having been set free, he's using the passive voice. You didn't free yourself having been set free. Someone else set you free. He uses that same passive voice when he talks about being re-enslaved to someone else, having been re-enslaved to God. Who freed him? God did. Who enslaved him? God did. Verse 21, you know, in God's sight, there's, there's, there, there's been no benefit that a man can derive from the things that he served prior to salvation. He says, prior to that, he says, those things which you served, now that you are saved, you are ashamed of. And that is the natural response of somebody who's truly born again. The things that you relished in your freedom, I'm free to do these things whenever I want to, you were free when you were a slave to sin, but now what? Now that you're a slave to God, you find those very activities are the things that bring you shame and sorrow and, and remorse. And one of the marks of a true Christian is that you are ashamed of those things that are part of your, your past life. Well, you know, whether, I don't mean whether that they have to be heinous things either. They can be great things, great generous things, but you did them for your purposes, for your own aggrandizement. Aggrandizement, I think that's the right word. And now, because you were doing those things apart from obedience to God, now you find those things shameful. For those who have been set free, we're now in verse 22, those things that we have been set free from, what is the fruit? What is the benefit of that? It leads to sanctification and eternal life. Having been set free from sin, it leads to sanctification and eternal life. We're tempted, if you look at those verses in isolation, you're tempted to think he's talking about sanctification when we are finally glorified in the afterlife and eternal life referencing what happens to us after we're dead. And that's true, except that's not his point here. He's talking about the sanctification process that's going on right now in this life that you are changing, 
that you are being made more like Christ, that you are less like who you were, that you are becoming somebody else. That's the process of sanctification. And the eternal life that he's talking about is not just life everlasting, and because even the wicked people have everlasting life. Am I right? I mean, they don't, they don't get wiped out. They continue to exist through eternity. And they have life now. They have existence, obviously. You're talking to them, and they, and they have existence. So that's not what he means. He's not talking about life, and he's not talking about eternal existence. He's talking about everlasting life in the sense of knowing God, of, of, of knowing him personally. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Because it comes up again in the next verse, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. This is one of those verses that everybody learns as a kid, right? I mean, they're taught to thousands of Sunday school classes. You know, if you, we, we named the street coming up here Romans Road because there's an evangelistic technique where you lead somebody through the book of Romans using these, these little catchphrases. The first one is Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen, glory of, fallen short of the glory of God. And then the next one is the one we're looking at here, where it says, you know, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so we named our street Romans Road after that evangelistic technique. So this is one of those very famous passages. It's got to be the third most famous one in the scripture. The, the, the 3.23 is more famous than 6.23. And of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, has got to be the most common uh, used verses in the scripture. But again, Paul is talking about um, sanctification and eternal life. And he's saying that this is not just something which happens in the future. This is not just what happens to us in the life to come but he's talking about that we have this eternal life and we are being sanctified even now in this present life. In fact, you know, how does Jesus define eternal life? He says, uh, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So in, in a sense then, whenever we come to Christ as Christians, right then we have begun eternal life. We are now Christians, we are now experiencing this eternal life. And the most obvious evidence of that is that we know God, and conversely, that God knows us. So he's talking about the present right now, the present reality. So this eternal life begins now. And so that's why Paul is arguing that if you are a Christian, if you have become, verse 20, a slave of God, you can't continue on in this slavery to sin. And you say, well, wait a minute, how am I better off if I'm freed in one's case of being a slave to sin just to become somebody else's slave? How is that a benefit? You know, how do, I'm still a slave. How, how am I free in any sense of the term? Well, he goes on to say, well, you know, if you have a rotten, if you're a slave and you have a rotten master who's cruel and, and abusive and and, and demanding, and you are purchased by a slave owner who's uh, generous and kind and accommodating, that would be an improvement. That would be a good thing, right? You'd be better off, even though you're still a slave. So even in the natural world, we get that. We, you can move from a, a rotten slavery to a good slavery, assuming that you're a slave. Um, you'd have that significant gain. But the point that Paul's making here is that slavery to God 
is the only way to actually achieve freedom. So here he's introducing that subject of freedom. So he says we're slaves to God. We were slaves of sin. We've been purchased with the blood of Christ. We are slaves of God. We voluntarily presented ourselves to God as slaves of righteousness. And now he says that's the only way that you're actually going to achieve freedom. And what is this freedom? Well, it's I've been trying to build a case here. This freedom is not autonomy in the sense that you, you have license to do absolutely anything you want to. True freedom is really the ability to fulfill one's destiny to function in terms of one's ultimate goal. True freedom, real freedom, is now the ability to do what's right. And you didn't have that freedom before. You remember the conversation that Jesus had with some of the Jewish religious leaders of his day? It's in John chapter 8, begins in verse 31. He's, there are some of the Jewish people who were following Jesus who... who we're recognizing who he is. And uh, Jesus is speaking about the source of his teaching. And some of the Jews had begun to follow him in a rudimentary way. And then Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth. And what? The truth will set you free. And at this, many of the other Jews got really torqued at him. What do you mean, set us free? You know, and they say they don't like the suggestion any more than you do that you're anybody's slave. God's or anyone's. We, we're persistent with this idea that we have total autonomy. We don't answer to anyone. I'm, the own, I'm my own Lord and Master, captain of my fate. We resent the suggestion at the core. You know, we want, don't use the word slave talking about my submission to God. Use something softer like servant, follower, disciple. Don't, don't suggest I'm somebody's slave. And so they said the same thing that you're thinking. They said, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Well, you know that in the most obvious way, that was really a stupid thing to say. And look at the history of the Jewish people. For 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. During the, the period of the judges, they were at least enslaved to foreigners seven times. Then you have the Bap Babylonian captivity of 70 years. And who's Jesus talking to at that very moment? He's talking to these Jews. Who's looking over their shoulder? The Romans. In their pocket, they carried Roman coins that showed their, their economy was dominated by Rome. They're slaves at the moment. And they have the audacity to say, we've never been anybody's slave. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So what kind of freedom is Jesus talking about? He's talking about true freedom, the only kind of true freedom, real freedom. It's not the liberty to do anything you want to at all. It's not the ability to choose for yourself what's in your own best interest. True freedom comes from knowing the Word of God and knowing God, or in this case, knowing God's Son, Jesus Christ. Can I put this... Bluntly, the only freedom that you are ever going to know, either in this life or in the life to come, is the freedom of serving Jesus Christ. 
And that means a life of righteousness. Anything else really is slavery, regardless of how you want to you word it, regardless of how the world may promise you that you can be freed from God and do as you want to. That's a lie that Satan perpetrated. John Newton, the slave owner, the slave trader, the one-time slave himself and the slave of slaves, um, John Newton became John Newton, the, the pastor, the abolitionist, uh, the slave of slaves, and the slave of sin became the slave of righteousness. In 1767, William Cowper, the poet, moved to Olney, where John Newton's church was, and he began to collaborate with John Newton over the next couple decades, writing and collecting uh, hymns that the two of them were writing together. And among Newton's most well-known hymns were Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, and another one, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. And one that we sang yesterday at the service here is Faith's Review and Expectation, also known as Amazing Grace. Let's pray.